Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guests today are Dr. Lucy C. Sorensen, Associate Professor of Public Administration and Policy at the University at Albany, and Dr. Sean D. Bushway, a Professor of Public Administration and Policy at the University at Albany, as well as a Senior Policy Researcher at RAND. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, happy to have you. And Excited to talk about this interesting and and uh, provocative in some ways forthcoming article in JPAM that you co-authored along with Montserrat Avia Acosta, who's a PhD candidate at SUNY Albany, as well as John B. Engberg, a senior economist at RAND. The paper's entitled The Thin Blue Line in Schools, New Evidence on School-Based Policing Across the U.S. So, This is an important paper that provides some rigorous analysis and rigorous evidence on the impacts of school resource officers, or SROs, in schools. So let's start with just talking about what is an SRO, how does one become an SRO, who hires them, Uh, just some basic definitions there. Okay. Well, the federal government defines a school resource officer as a career law enforcement officer assigned in a community policing capacity to a local educational agency. Community policing capacity has a specific meaning here because community policing is considered to be the sort of preferred method of policing in the United States currently. The key here, though, is that the SRO is hired, selected, and supervised by the local law enforcement agency and not the school. Although in some districts, it does appear that school administrators have the power to reject selected candidates. So in other words, if I'm the police chief and I send over Lucy and they say, I don't want Lucy, I'll send somebody else. A few large school districts, the school district actually has its own police force. And in that case, the school district can be said to have more power because they actually hire the officers. But it's important to remember that in all cases, the police officer doesn't work for the school and does not have the power to suspend or expel, but does have the power to arrest. Okay. Typically, they would have had some prior experience as a police officer. Yes. In almost all cases that we're aware of, they've usually been a police officer for a bit before they become a school resource officer. It's not your first gig, but yes, you've already been trained and, and you're a police officer and you have a gun and, and you have all the, you know, you're a sworn officer. In okay. A, yeah, that was something force. else I wanted to, to clarify. SROs typically or always do carry a firearm? It can vary 
in some cases, but in general, yes, it's reasonable to assume that if you're talking about school resource officer in schools, they have their gun with them. Okay. And they're wearing a, a pretty typical looking police uniform. Yes. I mean, in some cases they're wearing their vests, their bulletproof vests, which is now fairly standard. But, but they're not in street clothes, I guess. They're generally not in street clothes. Not to say they never show up in street clothes, but in general, no. Right. Okay. So they're, they look like a, a, a regular police officer and, and that's the presence in the school. Now, your paper mentions that as of a few years ago, as many as half of the public schools in the United States had an SRO. At first glance, that seemed like a high number to me, but I'm curious from your sense, is that a high share? And has this share been trending up over time? I I assume it has been trending up uh, a little bit. And with regards to the trend, I guess, when did it become common for schools to have SROs? There's no national database on school resource officers. Um, so that's, it's a little bit hard to say definitively in every case, but there are several federal surveys. And although I think the first SRO was in the 50s, it's fair to say that you know, SROs were pretty rare in the 1970s, like less than 1% of the schools would have had one in the 70s. Okay. So if you went to school in the 70s, you probably didn't have a school resource officer. Um, but by 2005, 2006 school year, about 32% of the schools reported having an SRO. And that number increased to about 45% in 2017-2018 school year, with another 13% reporting they had a host of police who were not an SRO. So they, they would have police around, but they weren't in this sort of assigned function in a community policing role. That amounts to about 50,000 full or part-time SROs in schools at least once a week, and over 15,000 police officers in schools who are not SROs. Okay. Um, in terms of when this started to really expand, it really started to expand after the Columbine shooting in, I believe that was in uh, 1999, when the U.S. Department of Justice gave almost three quarters of a billion dollars in grants to hire SROs through the Cops and Schools programs, which ran from 1999 to 2005. And it was a direct response to Columbine. Okay. Until 2010, most SROs were only in high schools. But in response to high-profile shootings that were not just in high schools, states began passing laws requiring SROs or other armed personnel in all schools, which has led to an increase of SROs in elementary and middle schools recently. Okay. Just to, I guess, clarify another sort of definitional thing about SROs, SROs would typically come to school every day, or most days they would be there. Yeah. I mean, during the summer, they're often, you know, just being regular police officers, doing regular police officer things. But during the school years, they're going to be, you know, unless there's something exceptional happening in the community, they're in the schools. They may be in one school one day and another school another day, but that's their job. Their job okay. is right. to be so it's a, it's a in regular. The it's a regular presence as opposed to being called in for a particular event or incident. Yeah. I mean, I think the way to think about it is that's their beat. There are other ways that schools can be working with police. They can have a police that's just their regular liaison for dealing with regular things when police are called to schools because police are called to schools in response to incidences. This is a specific role that they're playing where their beat is SRO is the school and their job is to do a variety of things in that setting. They typically think of it as three things, which is a safety function, a teaching function, and a mentoring function. So they're not just there doing safety stuff. Obviously the safety stuff is the biggest part of those three legs. Okay. And and so, you know, it's it's trending up. The presence of SROs is, is trending up. 
Columbine and some other high-profile school shootings exacerbated that increasing trend. Are certain types of schools or types of communities more likely to have an SRO? Well, as I mentioned, SROs are more common in high schools and in larger schools with more resources. As it turns out, rural and suburban schools are more likely to have SROs than urban schools. Urban schools are more likely to have security guards. Schools with pre-existing violence or disciplinary issues are more likely to get SROs. Uh, in our study, we we would he- see people applying for police departments applying for SROs, specifically saying, "Look, we've been there 50 times in the last year. It'd be nice just to have somebody assigned there." In terms of other countries, we were able to do some research that showed that cities in Canada have police officers until recently, where they've ended their programs. In contrast, I think, what they call safer school officers are expanding rapidly in the UK. The mayor of London recently reported that 61% of all London schools have an assigned safe school officer, safer school officer. And Okay. That's kind of on par with the US almost. Yeah. Maybe the difference is that they're not armed because UK police officers are not armed. And and on the other hand, they also have basically a liaison officer at every school uh, in a way that I don't think is true in the US. Okay. So some other countries like the UK and Canada are starting to have more SROs, but globally, I'm assuming that the US is still something of an outlier in the frequency and and prevalence of of SROs and armed police in schools. Yeah, I think it's important to note that Canada has actually retrenched and hasn't. We had a retrenchment period in the US that seems to have degraded, but that hasn't seemed to be the same in Canada. And I think the main issue is that our police officers have guns our firearms. And that's not true in other places. Right. And I, I'd imagine that the possession of, of firearms is going to be related to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the public discourse around SROs and schools is pretty contentious and politicized. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that, that the presence of guns is part of it, but more broadly, why is this such a contentious and politicized issue? And, and what's the fundamental sort of pro-con debate about SROs? It, it's definitely the case that it's contentious, but it's not unambiguous uh, in that sense. That, I mean, there are numerous surveys showing that most, but not all, school community members feel safer with an SRO on campus. But there are also a longstanding group of activists who believe on principle that police are inconsistent with the mission of public schools. Right. That's not a it's not a definitive statement. Right. If they're part of the community, high schools have youth. Youth is where the most crimes are. So in that sense, it's not surprising that you would want to make you might want to have, have police in that environment. So, but, but some people believe that's a different that, that schools should be a different thing than, say, parks or some other environment. This movement picked up momentum around 15 years ago with growing concern around zero tolerance policies, which started before Columbine. And the potential for a school-to-prison pipeline, which is a powerful metaphor describing a pathway from school discipline to juvenile justice and adult criminal justice involvement, particularly for Black and Hispanic youth and those with disabilities. Mm-hmm. The concern was amplified around the murder of George Floyd. And as a result, direct result of that discussion, at least 50 school districts ended or cut the budgets of their SRO programs. According to Education Week, at least eight of those districts have reversed the policy as of June 2022, and other districts like Denver have joined them in the past year. Okay. 
This idea of a school to prison pipeline highlights the, the I guess, the potential downside or the, the long run harm that SROs might contribute to. So what are the the specific channels that we think SROs might do or affect students through that on the one hand might benefit their long run outcomes and long run success. And on the other hand might hinder their long run academic and, and life success. As we've been thinking about SROs, we're thinking about three main channels through which they might affect students' long-term outcomes. So the first one, which I think uh, Sean and you have alluded to previously, is the at least theoretical notion that SROs could prevent violence at school or make schools safer in some way. And so we know from prior research, including some of yours, Seth, that exposure to violence can be harmful to youth. And so any reductions in violence in the school environment that SROs produce could benefit these longer-term outcomes for students and for their, their learning inside the school. So the second channel we've been thinking about is that SROs could affect students instead through their direct policing activities. So one chief concern is that just having a law enforcement officer on school grounds could increase the likelihood that students get arrested or that they get referred to police authorities for more minor misbehavior that would ordinarily be dealt with internally by other school personnel. And again, there's research showing that if you experience arrest or involvement in juvenile justice early in life, it has these long-term kind of cumulative adverse effects on youth. And the third channel that we think SROs might affect students is a little bit more amorphous, but it's through the indirect influence on the climate and the operation of a school. So for instance, they could make students or staff feel more safe or less safe. They could also affect how other school personnel interact with students in the disciplinary process. So if you think about the different ways that students get suspended or expelled, the teachers involved, uh, an administrator, either an assistant principal or, or a principal is involved, And so the SRO might get involved in different parts of that disciplinary chain that could affect those outcomes for students. So there's a lot going on there. And you can think of schools being like a a fairly complicated ecosystem. The SRO is like a new agent or new actor being introduced to this ecosystem, and they can interact with it in a variety of ways, some of which could lead to good outcomes, some of which might lead to, to not so good outcomes. The contribution and value of your study, which I think is is very real and important, is to bring some objective, rigorous evidence to the discussion about what what is the actual net outcome of introducing SROs into the complex life of a school. It's rather striking to us that we got to the level that we were describing without a lot of careful research about the actual impact. So that's kind of an interesting thing, right? We talked about how many thousands of SROs and the, le- the level of research is, is pretty limited. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, well, I guess first, what specific questions are you addressing in your research? And also, I'm curious, like, why do you think there is not so much research? Is it just a data availability issue? Yes. So to your first question about what specific questions and outcomes we study, 
We look pretty broadly based on those theoretical uh, mechanisms I was just mentioning before. So in terms of the violence outcomes or safety outcomes, we look at the number of gun-related incidents in the school and the number of other violent incidents in the school. The policing activities, we look at school-based arrests and referrals to law enforcement. And then for the disciplinary outcomes, we look at in-school and out-of-school suspensions, expulsions, as well as to academic outcomes of chronic absenteeism and grade retention. So we look very broadly. To your second question of of why there isn't much research in this space, and there have been a few really good, excellent studies. Two of them are in JPAM, actually, by Emily Owens and Emily Weisburst, looking at the effects of SROs. But the main reason I think that we have limited research, at least quantitative research, is that data on SROs has been basically non-existent or very inconsistent for years. So the data that we're using, which is the civil rights data collection, is kind of the first attempt to really get a full picture of which schools have SROs. And because they're not school district employees, as Sean mentioned earlier, they're usually law enforcement agency employees. And so they're in this weird, you know, they're kind of halfway between schools and police agencies in terms of who their authority is. And so they don't show up in education administrative data the way that teachers do and principals do and all that type of stuff. So yeah, I think it's a data availability issue for sure. Got it. And this, you said civil rights data collection, this is national data? Yes, this is a a national biannual survey of every school in the country, of every public school in the country. And it has a 99.5% response rate because they're, it's, it's required to report to them. So yeah, that's the data that we're using for our study. Got it. And, and this was initiated by the federal government? Yes, the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. Okay. And is the data publicly available or is it, you know, how did you get access to it? It is publicly available. Yes, so you can just go and download it off of either the Office of Civil Rights website or the Urban Institute has a really nice system as well where you can download data from there. Okay, that's great. You did this careful analysis with this data. My reading of your of your article was that you find somewhat mixed results. Why don't you walk us through what you think that the main findings are? Yes, yeah, so we definitely do observe these trade-offs in our findings. So the first thing that we find is that SROs, if anything, increase the number of gun-related incidents at schools. And this category includes both like traditional gun possession, but also physical attacks or threats with guns. And it's a very rare outcome. So for this finding, it's a little bit difficult to know whether SROs actually increase gun violence through some criminogenic effect on schools or whether they're just detecting more guns on campus or some combination of these two things. Sure. Our our second finding, the other safety outcome goes in the opposite direction where we see that other forms of violence, such as physical attacks and threats without a weapon, went down by around 30% or two and a half incidents per 500 students. So This is kind of, I think, the most promising finding from our study, that SROs do seem to effectively reduce some forms of violence at school. And you think that's because they're 
that they're there to monitor and so it sort of deters and prevents incidents from happening in the first place or Yes. Yeah, so it could certainly be through deterrence that students are less likely to start a fight if they know that there's a cop in the hallway or something. It could be through those informal mentoring roles that SROs, at least in theory, like to try and build with students. Or it could be through the fact that we see many more students being removed from school. So that this is our third set of findings, which is that when an SRO is introduced to a school, we see that out-of-school suspensions increase by around 60%, expulsions by around 90%, and police referrals and arrests by around 50%. So they're just taking more students, SROs and the administrators in the schools are taking more students out of the classroom, out of the school. And so that could be driving some part of the violence reduction we see. Okay. I guess critics of SROs might say that those removals are problematic and that they might disrupt the removed student's future trajectory. Exactly. There's now some pretty compelling evidence that being suspended is is quite harmful for those students, not just that year in terms of missed classroom time, but also moving forward. And then, you know, what makes this so difficult is that the trade-off is that, that the students who are stay in school now have fewer disruptions or fewer incidents and so on. And what about the academic outcomes? I think you looked at, at things like attendance and stuff like that. Yeah, so we didn't find any effects on grade retention. For chronic absenteeism, they were mixed where we saw in our preferred model where we control for a bunch of different things, we saw increases in chronic absenteeism, but that was less like consistent across all of our different analyses. And so we we aren't putting a ton of weight on that finding, but at least there don't seem to be any positive benefits for academic outcomes, which would be consistent with the story that you're telling that maybe if there's less disruption, it's actually good for other students. But that's not something, at least with the outcomes we're looking at, that we observe. Okay. And then did you do any subgroup analyses of how the impact of SROs might be different for different demographic groups of students? Yes. And this is one nice thing about the civil rights data collection, again, is that they disaggregate everything by race, ethnicity, gender, uh, whether you have a disability, et cetera. And so we see the largest effects on the adverse outcomes, which I will say are suspensions, expulsions, and arrests. These are largest for Black students, for male students, and for students with disabilities. So just to give an example, we saw that a new SRO leads to two and a half times larger increases in school-based arrests for black students than it does for white students. And we think this is very concerning because there are already existing disproportionalities in both school discipline and also in criminal justice contact by race. And so what we're seeing is that SROs appear to worsen these patterns and that it could have long-term ramifications for racial equity. Yeah. So in other words, it might exacerbate existing racial disparities in 
in different educational and behavioral outcomes. Yes, that's right. Okay. So these are, you know, important results. That, and, and like we've said, there's not a, a ton of, of knowledge about these impacts out there. So this is a real important contribution to the evidence base here. When you did your analysis, how are you able to be pretty confident that you're separating out the true effect of the SROs from all the other confounding factors that might exist in the sense that I think Sean said that SROs are more common in schools with more resources. How are we separating out the effect of those resources from the effect of the SROs? Yeah. So as as Sean was describing earlier, it's not random which schools get SROs. They're larger, they're more resourced, but they also might be having more violence or discipline issues. And so we can't just naively compare those two groups of schools. And so we use a method called fuzzy regression discontinuity with the idea here that for this federal COPS hiring grant program, which funds a lot of school-based policing, that you know agencies that scored just above the threshold for getting that funding versus police agencies that scored just below that funding threshold because we can link the agencies to schools, we can say these schools are are on average systematically the same other than the fact that, you know, the police agency near school A got an award and scored just above the threshold and police agency B didn't. And so they don't have funding for an SRO. And so that's kind of the basic logic we use for a natural experiment to study the effects of SROs. So it's almost like the way the the money for the hiring program is allocated, some districts randomly got the money and some didn't, and they hired SROs with those funds. How big is the funding program? Who's eligible for it? How much money are we talking coming from the federal government for this uh, program? Yes. So the Community-Oriented Policing Services, or COPS Office in the U.S. Department of Justice, as Sean mentioned earlier, they did a, lo- a large COPS in Schools grant program a decade or more ago, but now they do school-based policing funds through this COPS hiring grant program. And over the past decade, they've spent around $150 to $200 million a year on hiring of police officers through this program. And any law enforcement agency is eligible, essentially, and can receive federal funding for between one and 25 police officers. So is it districts that are applying or, or police offices that are applying? It's police agencies who are applying, but usually in their grant, they'll say, this is to fund an SRO for the elementary schools in Albany County School District or something, you know, they'll specify what the SROs are going to be used for. And so that's how we link it to the schools. I see. And then who is scoring the applications and how are they being scored? Like what's what's the criteria there? Yes. So the COPS office scores these and there are three components to the score. The first one is a little bit more subjective. It's the, it's a score regarding the police agency's commitment, either current or planned, to community policing, as Sean defined it earlier. 
The second part of the score has to do with the level of crime in the community. This is calculated based on community crime rates where higher levels of crime translate to a higher score. So the worse crime is, the higher your score is. And then the third element is the level of fiscal need of the police agency, which is, again, a calculated metric where if the police agency is seen to have higher fiscal need, then they'll get a higher score. And so they put these three scores together, and that's kind of the final score that translates into with some some elements like that they try to be equitable across states. So there are some stipulations here, but this score is essentially what determines who gets an award and who doesn't get an award. I see. A couple things on this that are really interesting. One is that there was a person in the cop's office who was really cooperative and really helped us understand this. And second of all, just for people who are interested in how this kind of research gets done, Lucy really dug in here. This is a place where you know, it, it's not super easy to figure this out. And Lucy just did a, a heck of a lot of work to try to understand how this was being done such that we could then apply this this uh, this fuzzy RD design. So in terms of the, the guts and how this kind of research gets done, really needed cooperation from the agency itself, as well as just dogged determination to try to understand how this works. Yeah, you really need to understand the institutional details here to carry out this type of regression discontinuity design, which again, we're looking at at two different agencies who submitted proposals. They were very similar proposals, very similar agencies. One just barely crossed the threshold to get the funding. One just barely fell short. And so we feel comfortable saying that these two agencies are really, really similar, almost identical. And it's almost arbitrary what pushed one across the threshold and and the other not, sort of mimicking the kind of RCT or or truly randomized experiment that we would have loved to to analyze in the first place. So so that's where your your causal estimates come from. I I agree, Sean, you all did a, a, a great job understanding the institutional details to properly compare the applications that did and didn't get funded. Now that we have those results, we've talked about the results, I guess I'm, I'm going to come back to the question of, all right, like, so what? We see that there's some, some mixed effects, some good things, some not so good things. We've talked about uh, the other trade-offs, but in my mind, one of the really important questions here is, like, what did the schools that didn't win the SRO funding do? What's the alternative to an SRO? Are they being replaced with a private security guard? Or are they doing something different? Are they just doing nothing? What's the alternative here to SROs? Well, I mean, as I mentioned, the SROs do not have the power to suspend or expel. So when we talked about the observed income, it's occurring through the interaction between school administrators and the police. So if you were to say, let's withdraw the SROs, it doesn't mean the police will not be in schools, that schools will not make referrals to the juvenile justice system. It's just that it won't happen at the instigation of the police. It can be the case that the referrals to the system can occur through uh, school staff. And it's also the case that in the absence of an SRO, the schools will continue to call police to respond to violence or other problems. In general, there is ongoing research about how schools approach discipline And there are other alternatives like restorative justice, 
But the research that I'm aware of is conducted in school districts that continue to employ school officers in the school resource officer role. So using something like restorative justice is not an alternative to police as much as a new approach to finding ways to handle some of the more minor school disciplinary problems that, in fact, police shouldn't be involved in in the first place, according to best practices. In terms of direct alternatives, I'm not aware of any research that explores the impact of security guards, either on their own merits or in comparison to SROs, but this seems like that would be important to do. Mm-hmm. And given the potential importance of SROs, their direct interaction with students and so on and so forth, do we know much about how much SROs vary in their skill sets, in the type of training they received, anything like that? Well, the SROs that are hired through the COPS school-based policing grants in our study are all required to receive training from the National Association of School Resource Officers, which is the most well-known training program. It's a 40-hour training course that's offered. And in general, school resource officers should have some special training to work with youth in the school setting, but we don't have any ability to generalize that the training we saw was NASRA training. We don't know how much variation there was in that or how that differs from other SROs funded by state and local governments that might have different training requirements. Right. And I guess... It's also worth noting that the the training requirement, I guess, is the bare minimum. It's also possible that some districts or police agencies offer extra training on top of of what's required federally. Or less. But yeah, I mean, I think we don't really have a good sense of what these police officers look like in terms of their training when they're in the schools in general, right? It may be very different. You know, you may have someone... Some school districts may have people that have been on the job for 30 years, and some people may have the you know folks that are on the job for five years and have have actually had different training to start with, right? In other words, because police training actually changes over time, the police academy may have very different training 15 years ago than it does now. So that, you know there is probably significant variation just in terms of baseline as to as to how cops are approaching their jobs. Yeah, I, I, I thought about that a lot when I was reading your paper, just because I know there's a lot of, of, of evidence about how much teachers vary in their effectiveness and, and in their skill sets. And I'd imagine that there's a similar phenomenon maybe with the, with the SROs. So to sort of come back to some policy discussion and, and implications of your work, if a district or a straight district or a state came to you and said, you know, should we or shouldn't we fund SROs in every school or make it easy for or maybe require SROs in every school? Do you have a a straightforward answer to that? Is it a a nuanced answer about costs and other things that that money might need to be spent on? Or or how would you answer that sort of question? Yeah. So, Different people are going to, I think, interpret our findings differently and put different weights on these positive outcomes that we saw versus the negative impacts that we uncovered about SROs. Right. And different districts and schools will have different needs. But Mm -hmm. to me personally, when I look at, at this set of findings that we have from our study and also the broader literature on the subject... It's hard for me to conclude that SROs are particularly sound investments, either from 
a cost-benefit perspective or from an equity perspective. Given that there are kind of a growing set of alternative school safety approaches out there, which such as things that Sean mentioned earlier, uh, restorative justice practices, mental health supports, that we still have a lot to learn about them in terms of implementation, but they don't have seem to have as many negative spillovers onto students. The other thing I wanted to mention is that many school districts that originally stated that they were going to end their SRO programs in the summer of 2020 during this defund the police movement have really since changed course, either because they have fears over rising violence in schools or because, you know, they survey school administrators and teachers and other groups and find the SROs are still quite popular among a certain set of constituents. And so this, I think, poses a real tension where in practice, districts that are highly reliant on policing are having a really hard time envisioning a new model or figuring out how to transition away from policing. But a system such as Chicago's, for instance, where now every individual high school in Chicago gets to choose whether they keep their two SROs or whether they trade in one or both of those SROs for funds that they can use for alternative safety investments, things like that, that allow schools to use their discretion and understand the needs of their community might be quite valuable. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I I think it's important to stress that districts vary quite a bit in the different challenges they face, the different contexts that they operate in. And so there's there's probably not a one-size-fits-all approach to SROs or answer to that question. Do you have any other sort of specific items of advice for states or districts that are either considering adopting a, a more formal use of SROs or even just maybe refining their existing use of SROs? I think there are two things that we talk about a lot in terms of items that would be really important for the use of SROs moving forward. One is that states and districts really need memoranda of understanding or MOUs that are clear about the appropriate roles and responsibilities for SROs in their schools. Many districts already have these, but some don't, or they have them, but they're not clearly communicated to the SROs or to the school principals such that SROs are still getting pulled into minor disciplinary matters. The second thing that I I think we agree would be really useful is that states and districts need better practices for data collection around SROs. Yes, the CRDC is a big improvement, but for instance, Florida still doesn't report their SROs accurately, neither does New York City. And so we lack the type of personnel information. Even in our study, we, we don't know anything about the SROs. So we don't know their experience. We don't know their training. We don't know their race and gender. And so I think in order to really understand SROs in the way that I think in the education literature, we understand principals and teachers, we need to have better data that's tracked reliably and that that could help inform future decisions. Two things I think I, that I would add to it as well is one is that we've really heightened, this research really heightens the the, the research around the, the power of suspensions and expulsions 
And other work we've done has really demonstrated that principals are a key part of that, far more important than whether or not you have an SRO in your school. And so I think that being thoughtful about the ways in which suspensions and expulsions are used, whether or not you have an SRO, is really important. And the other thing I think that uh, we really want to think about in this context is community policing. Sometimes there's this disjoint as, you know, there's community, this is part of the larger movement of community policing, which many uh, executive level commissions have said is the preferred method of policing, including the uh, work that was done on this topic under Barack Obama. But oftentimes the conversation around SROs is if they're somehow not best practice, and yet they are. And so this conversation about whether they belong in school, whether police officers belong in schools, is got to be part of a larger conversation about how we want policing done in this country. If they're not in schools in this way, are they going to be in schools in other ways? Because they're going to interact with people in communities and other settings. And so we really want to be thinking about this as part of a larger discussion about how police should be working and not some isolated discussion as if it's different than other things that are going on in the policing frame. That makes a lot of sense. It is uh, both with regards to schools in general and policing in general. This is just one small piece of the piece of the pie. So last question I, I had that you know I was thinking about reading your paper was how would you advise schools or state department of education and th- things like that? But what would you tell the SROs themselves or the groups that train SROs? Does your research provide, provide any insights there? I think that if I were to speak with SROs or groups that train SROs about this research, I would emphasize, emphasize that it's important to remember that the position of a school resource officer is really different from other law enforcement officer roles and positions they might have held, right? So SROs, I think, you know, they receive a lot of training on how do you prepare for an active shooter, for instance, Mm -hmm. but they receive less training on average on, you know, how do you best interact with students with disabilities? How do the developmental needs of children and youth vary between, let's say, elementary schools and middle schools and high schools? Also, how implicit racial bias might affect their decision making. So I think that this type of specialized training that recognizes that SROs have to deal with different stuff than other police officers, I think can ensure that SROs are not only fulfilling their duties as law enforcement officers, but also acting as I think they would like to as mentors and protectors of vulnerable youth. Yeah. And in that sense, it's almost some of the things that we would like to provide with teachers or provide to teachers. You know, similar aspects of teacher training might be applied to SROs as well. No, it makes total sense. And I, and I agree. We're about out of time. This has been a really interesting and, and fascinating discussion. Uh, I, I learned a, a lot about SROs and their potential impacts and the sort of nuanced trade-offs that, that they create in schools um, from reading your paper and from talking to you today. Any last items that we didn't quite get to or one last takeaway point that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I'll start. And then uh, I'm sure Lucy has something even more important to say. But I think one of the things that we didn't cover, which I think is important, is 
as we mentioned, one of the motivations for uh, why schools have school resource officers is uh, mass shootings. We were particularly focused on trying to understand if if we could say anything about that. And the basic conclusion is we can't. And it's because these events are, are rare and we weren't able to get enough variation on schools that had and didn't have school resource officers relative to places that had mass shootings. And so from my perspective, it's really striking that one of the major reasons why we have school resource officers in those schools is something that we can't actually speak to in terms of whether or not they can prevent uh, mass shootings or not. And so the conversation becomes very anecdotal, like, well, that school had a police officer, but they didn't stop the shooting. And yet it's hard to then say, well, what about the school that didn't have a shooting, but because there was an officer? And so that anecdotal conversation really leaves a lot to be desired, yet there isn't a lot of empirical evidence that we can point to. So trying to really think hard about if this is why we're doing it, what kind of evidence do we have to show uh, its impact, I think, is an important takeaway here. Right. I, I think that's a really important point that Sean brought up and that we get asked about a lot. And unfortunately, our study can't speak to it, but I didn't have any any last points. So I just wanted to say thank you so much, Seth, for having us on the podcast and for talking about our research. Yeah. The feeling is mutual. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your uh, research and more importantly, for doing the research. Our, our guests today have been Dr. Lucy Sorensen and Dr. Sean Bushway, both at the Department of Public Administration and Policy at the University of Albany. Sean Bushway is also a senior policy researcher at RAND. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.